Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness, and we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay, and we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? Well, good morning, Pastor. Well, good morning, Dr. Robin. How are you? I'm good. It's International Women's Day today. It is. Yes. And, um, you know, we we only get a month to celebrate women. (laughs) Right. Just like... (laughs) Because that's what the the calendar tells us. (laughs) Right. Just like we only have a month to celebrate Black history. Right. So I could spend lots of time talking about how problematic that is and whatnot. Of course. I did write uh, about this, uh, uh, women matter, but do all women matter? And maybe we'll be sharing that with with the world at some point. Um, but I'm good. It's, it's uh, let me check my watch. It's 63 degrees outside here in Nashville. Yes. Yeah. And the sun is shining. And so, you know, if... Uh, if the sun is any indication of how this week will go, I feel very excited about some porch time. Yes, yes. I mean, I am, I, I, I'm, I am hesitant to assume that the season is starting to turn because you know Mother Nature, uh, she is, uh, she's. Fickle, yeah, um, and doesn't always uh, stick with the plan. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am too. I'm also very optimistic. I really enjoyed the sunshine this past week. Um, we didn't get a lot of rain. Uh, we didn't have a lot of you know overcast skies. The sun is really, really beautiful here in Chattanooga too. And I, uh, you know, I spent, I spent porch time here as well this past weekend Mm. and I'm excited to, to do that more. It's, it's really, really nice to have. It's amazing how different you feel. I feel in my body Mm -hmm. when the weather starts to turn. It's no secret. I am affected by, you know, seasons and Mm -hmm. I have seasonal affective disorder and, really do covet the sunshine. Even if it's cold, I covet the sunshine. And so I'm, I'm really happy that it's, that it's nice out. Yeah. I first discovered the seasonal affect when I was living in Chicago and when it's gray for like nine months, Yeah, uh, that, that really affected me. And then when I moved to Colorado for the PhD, you know, it's, they have like 300 days or 330 days of sunshine. And so you know, the sun was, even if it was cold, the sun was out right. and it, you know, it really, we really do need that yeah. vitamin D. Yeah. It's a, it is definitely a, um, 
a, a balm for my psyche. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I love being out in it. In fact, I have a, a, you know, cute little puppy dog asleep at my feet who, uh, played a game with me this weekend where she continued to ask to go to the bathroom. Oh, even though she really didn't have to go to the bathroom, she just wanted to go out and play in the sunshine. Oh, so. she was hustling you. She was. Yeah, yeah. She hustles me every day, <laughs> every day. Um, also, um, you're in Chattanooga. The sun is shining. Um, you're also fully vaccinated. Well, I, I have my first. Yes, I am fully vaccinated with my first dose of the vaccine. Um, it, it's interesting. There, there has there has arisen a study that um, shows that. And I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't want to get into the weeds on being scientifically incorrect. But it shows that for folks who have contracted COVID and also had the first phase of their vaccine, um, the second dose of the vaccine is almost unnecessary. Mm. In, in in what the body requires from an, an antibody standpoint. Mm. Um, it's not, I mean, it, you know, I mean, I'm still going to get it, yeah. but um, there are some really interesting studies coming out that, that link to the need, that, you know, and, and it speaks to, you know, Johnson and Johnson's vaccine is, is rolling out and there's, it's only one dose. Mm-hmm. So there, you know, there are ways that, that this will be done with only one dose, but I am, I am, I feel I just feel lighter. Like, I just feel like I'm, my shoulders are like not as clenched and, you know, um, but yeah, I'm fully vaccinated as are you. And because of that, we are, I mean, we aren't, you know, being too aggressive and and silly, but we are planning out a few months Mm -hmm. to get together Mm -hmm. in person Mm -hmm. And um, which we've not been able to do since my birthday, right? Yes, that's true. Yeah, which is just crazy. Yeah, um, but yeah, we're we're starting to you know to schedule things, and and I I am still very conscientious, and and you know will be taking precautions and social distancing and wearing my mask and um, doing all the things that I need to do regardless of my vaccine, you know, my vaccine status mm-hmm. simply because, you know, I mean, it, it I, my, my care for others supersedes right. um, my, you know, my, my arrogance over, over, you know, being vaccinated myself and, and knowing the privilege that it brings with it. But I'm, I am, happy that plans are starting to resume. Yeah. And just for people who might be on the train to getting vaccinated, there is a New York Times article that dropped today around if you are vaccinated, what does life look like in 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 mm-hmm. in the world? And oh, so so there are some protocols and yeah. not that the New York Times is like gospel for for sure. everyone. But I, I do find that that they have provided some really valid information for folks. The Atlantic also came out with an article about, OK, now that you're vaccinated, what does life look like? Mm-hmm. And so I've I've also been reading a lot of those to figure out, um, you know, what does this vaccine give me license to do? Yeah. Or does it? Because I think that 
you know, in the in the history of vaccination, there has been a sort of um, you know freedom that that yeah. that emerges assumptive freedom. Yeah, yeah. After getting the the vaccine or whatever, I mean, I remember getting. Um, the shots that were required to go to Cuba, for example, mm-hmm. and, and feeling like, Oh, well then I'm not like, I'm not going to contract, you know, whatever is right. I could, you know? Uh, and, and I think this whole COVID reality has really made me think around about this sort of license of freedom that vaccines often create for people. Um, yeah. So I just want to flag those two resources that yeah, no, that folks cute. could look into, and and thankfully I'm on the Dolly Parton Moderna train, and uh, <laughs> you know uh, my my financial advisor was like, you know, um, Dolly Parton, you know, rags the riches, but she's using her riches mm-hmm. in a way to help the society and to help our cultural body and. So I feel really grateful for that. Um, and I'll be fully vaccinated at the end of this month. Same. Yeah, yeah. me too. Very yeah. excited. Yeah. Uh, so this past week has been um, a bit of a shit show as <laughs> as we are, uh, as things go in, in the political and social structures of mm-hmm. at least our country. Yeah. Um, you know, the New York City mayor or the New York state mayor or governor, the New York governor is... Um, we are witnessing his, um, I mean, his real time fall from grace, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, all, all that does is affirm, um, you know, what most would suspect is the case with all mm-hmm. politicians <laughs> that mm-hmm. no matter how affirming or, um, uh, how much of a leader someone is in a time of tragedy as Cuomo was during uh, the onset of COVID, you know, for his state giving, you know, updates that were in many ways helpful and um, straightforward to a lot of folks. Um, he is just as capable of misogyny and predatory behavior as Many, many others are in the world, and these chickens are coming home to roost. Yeah. Yeah. And the U.S., you know, finally this weekend, well, the Senate uh, passed the stimulus plan, goes back mm-hmm. to the House. Um, this is not at all going to solve all of our problems, but getting monetary help into the hands of citizens and small businesses mm-hmm. is important. I mean, I mean, the thing that I don't get is like why why there are people who um, believe that we should work to have housing or we should work to have healthcare, right? Like right. I'm just like if if this past year is not an example of how the system is not working Correct. for people. Yeah, I don't know what is. <laughs> and is working for the few. I, I don't know what's going to change people's minds. And, and let me just tell you that, and maybe we'll have him on the podcast, but my good friend, Reverend Ryan Eller, who used to run um, 
um, the nonprofit American Dream, maybe with Jose. Oh gosh, I'm forgetting his last name. Vargas, I think, is his name. Um, Ryan lives in Louisville, and we connected on Friday. And Mitch McConnell is wanting to retire, but but because Kentucky has a Democrat governor, governor, Mitch doesn't want the Democrat governor to appoint a Democrat mm-hmm. to replace him. Mm-hmm. And so the state of Kentucky is trying to pass laws to prevent the governor from appointing. So I, so I say that to say there is also a lot happening on the state level. I just right. got tagged in a Facebook post by Jeannie Alexander, who yeah. was on our podcast earlier uh, talking about what the state of Tennessee is doing. Yes, this week is a very critical week for the state. And so, you know, there there is a lot happening. And I know that for, you know, white-bodied folks, it can feel really overwhelming to, like, figure out what does it mean to get your hands dirty? How, like, what do we do, you know? Um, and And, you know, like, Black women and Black people and Indigenous folks and people of color – have actually been asking us to shut up and listen for a long time. Um, and and yet most of us are not able to to practice that. And so yeah. there's a lot happening. There is. There is. And we are um we, I mean, it, it, it becomes very easy to be, to be consumed by it. Mm-hmm. Um, we have outlets. We have ways that we, you know, uh, kind of unhinge from that day to day and sink into the arts and sink into, um, you know, our, the, the creative side of our being. Um, and one of those ways is through, you know, just sitting down and, and binging on a, on a good movie or mm-hmm. a good show. Um, and that's, that's where we're headed today. We yeah. are going to chat a little bit about the amazing film that was uh, unveiled at Sundance earlier this year called Judas and the Black Messiah. Um, it's a biographical drama um, about Fred Hampton who was the chairman of the Illinois chapter of the Black Black Panther Party in the late 1960s. Um, And the film is based in Chicago and, and, and really, um, I mean, I, I have watched it twice mainly because I was so, um, I I felt so overwhelmed by it the first time Mm. that I knew that there were things that I missed. And so I went back and watched it again and, and really, cause I really wanted to pick up on nuance and, and, and some of the things, some of the things that folks said and, and, and obviously, you know, it's a screenplay and this is not, you know, it, it is a representation of what happened in real life, but, right. um, you know, there, there is a lot to unpack in the film and we really felt like it was a, a, a good thing for us to chat about it. Um, on the podcast and and let folks know what we thought about it and and encourage them to spend some time with it. Yeah, and and we did reach out to the folks in Chicago who um, are working to save the Hampton House um, because 
we thought it would be great to use this as an opportunity for folks to, uh, you know, if, if folks are wanting to know how they can, you know, like tangibly help out BIPOC folks, particularly black folks, um, there, there is this campaign going on, save the Hampton house. And, um, so we wanted to use this episode as a way not only to discuss the film and invite folks to watch the film um, and think about all the complexities therein, but also if you want to support like m- like today's Black Panther Party, right. this is a way that you could do that by you know supporting this campaign on Save the Hampton House, and I think that we'll probably include that link in the show notes when, when things get uploaded, but yeah, it's great, great film. And, um, there's lots there and I'm, and I'm wondering, uh, where do you want to start Uh. talking? I don't know. I mean, there's so much to, there's, there, there really is so much there. I think, I mean, I think it makes sense to really kind of dive into Fred Hampton as, as a human, as an activist, as someone who, you know, really put his body on the line um, and, you know, was murdered as a result of it mm-hmm. um, and really look at who he was and um, how he found himself in, in the situation that he did in, in Chicago in the late 60s. Yeah, you know, when I when I think about Chairman Fred Hampton um, and and his story that is depicted in the film, the the thing that that I that I often sort of imagine or see as a result of the way that he is depicted is, um, and I think there are lots of people who who have critiqued this. Um, is in, in, in critique in other areas, not not just in the Black Panthers, but the ways in which um, a single voice can really mobilize people. And and I and I know that in like white evangelical cir- circles, we have these like cult of personality figures who are leading churches, and and I. And I don't think that that is Chairman Fred Hampton. I, I think that, um, you know, we have to think about the lived experience of people of color, that what allows people of color to be leaders is a sense of embodied resilience. And I think that for Chairman Fred Hampton, what created those conditions for him to, you know, be elevated as sort of the spokesperson for the Illinois chapter is, um, you know, he just had a very um, broad and complex understanding of the issues and was able to distill them in a way to mobilize people. And, and that is something I think that we see in black organizing, particularly that um, that I think is a result of 
the ways in which um, generational trauma, historical memory lives in these bodies. And, and I think that we need to pay attention to that as, as people who are not just trying to do the right thing, but also trying to do better as Rachel Ricketts has written. And, and I think that, you know, like I think about my own proximity to whiteness as a mixed race Latinx, that um, my generational trauma lives in my body in a very different way than in black bodies or the trauma in black bodies. And part of that is because of my proximity to whiteness. And when, when I think about Chairman Fran, Fred Hampton and the ways in which he was able to like compost that trauma and turning into resilience and then mobilize people to like get people fed, to build coalitions with Latinx gangs is fucking brilliant. Yeah. You know, I'm, I, I self-admittedly did not come to understand the black Panthers as um, an organization that was doing good in the world until Mm -hmm. several years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'm conditioned in my whiteness to, um, you know, for the, for the first 30 or 40 years of my life to, you know, hear about the black Panthers and um, instantly go to a vision in my head of the way I was educated by a white Eurocentric, racist public school system in the mm-hmm. heart of of Northern Virginia to see the Black Panthers as um, militant, um, murdering, angry, um, you know, aggressive, and and not um, not worthy of the the not worthy of the role that they that they should have been understood to have played in the civil rights movement. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it took a long time for me to really understand uh, what it is the Black Panthers um, were all about, uh, all the, the, all the good they did in the world, um, the education and understanding of um, of blackness that they brought to the children in the communities that they were a part of and the ways that they fed those children and the ways they, um, you know, helped those kids understand how they, uh, could, um, engage in the work in what, in meaningful ways. Right. Um, and, and to really take away the, the, the stigma that my, you know, that was a reactionary, um, part of what I had always come to know about the Black Panthers as I was growing up. And I say that because, you know, as I, as I began to learn about um, leaders within the party, like Chairman Hampton, I came to understand that this, this revolutionary um, way of being that these that these men and women were able to kind of pour out of themselves 
into the communities that they were a part of mm-hmm. is, is just not something that you see in, in white spaces. You know, you, you talked a little bit about the way that, you know, there's this celebrity culture in, in a lot of ways, or even just this, um, like lifting up of, you know, white body people um, right. in evangelical or even progressive faith circles. And even those people, um, do not pour out of themselves um, that revolutionary spirit, or or even a changing or, or a you know a, a shifting spirit that people like Fred Hampton did. Right, and and there's just something that I I feel. I mean, I, I am. It makes me mad that we as white bodied people have lost or have ignored or have not been engaged in that part of a historical memory. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, it, it took me so many years to, to really be able to, to grasp and hold um, the, the, the right kind of respect and, and honor for the, the men and women of the Black Panther Party, and especially people like Fred Hampton, who did that hard work. It makes me mad that it took me so long to, um, to be able to, to, to just kind of hold a space in my head of absolute awe. Well, you know, um, there are lots of pieces to why that narrative or image is in lots of people's heads, right? Is you know, the role of the media is very powerful as propaganda. Right. And, and, you know, what are the images that we, that, that have been sensationalized or that have been um, normalized on our media channels, right? It's, it's black people, mostly black men with guns and, and that became like the overwhelming narrative of the Black Panthers, right? They're right. they they only care about violence, right? And you know, I I actually see and understand why they took up arms, right? Like they were systematically being assassinated by slave patrols, and so you know, I. I mean, I, I can I, I don't know what they said, but I can imagine they said something like um, enough. Yeah. And and so, you know, I think that for a lot of people, if there's violence being enacted on them to return violence or the threat of violence is a way to get your point across. Right. You know, and yet this was a, you know, this was an organization, if, if you have not read the 10 point platform and program for the Black Panther Party, um, I would encourage you to do so. We'll put that in the show notes too. I mean, this, you know, this 10 point platform explicitly talks about the end to violence as it relates to the Black community. You know, they don't, they want to end police brutality. 
They want to end the murder of black people. They want to end um, mass incarceration for black people. They want to exempt black men from military service, from being a part of a military industrial complex that sends them into war and, and places guns on their back and asks them to murder, um, it, you know, for the, for the sake of the country. The, there's so much about the organization that is that is the antithesis to the understanding that we have of them because of the mm-hmm. way they were portrayed in the media. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet it is because they likely murmured words like that's enough yeah. and no more that we, we as white people specifically understand them or, or believe we understand them to be something that they, that they, never had intended to be or right. desired to be in, in, in the, the cities that they, that they organized. Right. Um, you know, I'm, I am, I'm struck in the movie by how um, Fred Hampton is not only able to motivate those who are, uh, that that surround him, and that um, are kind of a part of the 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 movement that he is orchestrating, but he is also able to over time kind of build a coalition of understanding with other black led organizations in the heart of the city that initially were not on board with. Um, you know, with what the the Black Panther Party in Chicago was doing, right? Um, and and I, again, you know, knowing that 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 this is a you know a screenplay, and and there, I mean, there are books, friends, that you can read that give you know really you know concise and and beautiful detail around the the kind of community and and organizational um, you know movement work that um, both Hampton and the Black Panthers were doing in Chicago, but you know to to watch the coalition building kind of happen in front of our eyes in the movie, um, I think gives those of you who are looking to figure out how to then kind of get your own hands dirty in the work. Um, could look like what coalition building could look for look like for you, how you could kind of look to or or become, you know, a, a part of organizations that, you know, c- kind of cross pollinate and do this work in real time. Um, I'm wondering if you have anything to offer on that, Robin. Well, I think that um, for for a lot of white liberal progressives who are spending their time thinking about these, these issues. Um, I think that, um, I mean, I think a couple things, uh, you know, white folks um, just want to have unity in mm. like that sort of how white folks are conditioned. And this is why we get things like, um, to be nice as white, to be kind as white. And, and there's a whole racial analysis around niceness and kindness that I think white folks often don't sort of realize. And that, and that 
those things are tied to a sort of imagination of unity. Mm. And I, and I think that that imagination of unity is really problematic and, sure. and, and dangerous. And I, I like to think about, um, you know, sort of how do we make these profound breaks with the dominant system that seems to always cast a kind of imperial optimism, right? It will get better. You know, this is sort of the progressive, you know, incremental change. It will get better, you know, and, and eventually will arrive at this place of unity. Right. And I think that uh, that is not only misguided, but it, it also, um, accelerates harm against the least of these against minoritized bodies. And so I think that, um, I think the white folks need to get out of like, get out of their body, this idea of unity and that everything will be okay if we keep working at it and, and actually begin to, um, practice the, the, the composition of what I call bridging, which, which is, which is about building these coalitional politics, right? So how do we actually think um, not about like, how do we have a tweet go viral or how do we um, sell the next greatest book, but how do we actually practice um, building with people? And, and I'm using that term building of, of like, how do we, um, construct knowledge, practice like um, our, um, a shared lived experience in community. You know, how do we build with people who aren't where we're not just recreating the wheel, but actually um, making these profound breaks with the system? I like to talk about this in the language of networks of trust and networks of solidarity, which are rapidly declining. We don't really have them. Um, the Black Panther Party, I would say, was a network of trust and a network right. of solidarity. Um, and and those networks are an extreme threat to hegemonic systems, including the government. And so, um, you know, I you know, as a white passing Latinx, which I'm sort of thinking about, how do I want to talk about myself? Um, do I want to continue using that language? But my proximity to whiteness gives me an opportunity to speak with white folks. But what I'm finding is that white folks are actually, be because of the ways that their own generational trauma and generational triumph lives in their bodies, they believe, white folks believe, they are exempt and don't need healing, which I think creates a really big barrier to then building with people. And um, there was a whole Facebook exchange about this earlier. And so I'm, I'm sort of thinking through um, how do we invite people to get their hands dirty when white people think it's just about doing things and, and getting your hands dirty in the work for me is never about information and data. Right. It's about actually practicing an embodied awareness and complex understanding of what's happening in the world and showing up 
um, for embodied difference so that we can build coalitions. And, and, you know, it, I don't, I don't know. I I guess I, I don't know if white folks, um, white bodied folks are ready for that. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's an, it's an interesting, it's an interesting question and I don't know. I, I agree with you. I don't know if, if white bodied folks are ready for it either. Um, you know, because one of the tenets and the things that kind of insulate white folk is their uh, recognition that there is, you know, wrong in the world. There are things happening in the world that they disagree with and that they are willing to fight to change or to advocate to change or to pay money to change. Um but they believe that that action, that the that the calories that they burn, just doing that thing, um, is enough to unhinge them mm-hmm. from the problem. Mm-hmm. When, as you you know very clearly state, um, and and as many other you know embodiment experts would would affirm, you know that act is quite frankly, the passive side mm-hmm. of, of do really doing the, the real work. Um, it, it is the antithesis of, um, you know, really kind of looking deeply within yourself and understanding who you are and how you are conscripted into the thing um, that you have finally recognized needs to be changed. Yeah. Um, and so it's a, uh, I'm glad, I'm glad that you, I'm glad you moved us in that direction. And I'm glad you named those hard truths. Um, You know, there's the, the, the interesting thing about the film is that, you know, there are very few white folk portrayed in the film that aren't law enforcement or FBI Right. Um, or, um, you know, it, 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 it's some kind of, you know, of, of, uh, law, of law service um, or, of, or of governmental service. Um, you know, a handful of folks show up in some of the scenes that take place in, you know, the stores and the, you know, barrios, but that's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and there's the the illustrations of these white folk in the film are what i would assume to be fairly accurate for those times the ways that the police you know catcalled you know black folk on the street and mm-hmm. um minimized them as they walked past and you know yelled uh, horrible things to them and the ways that you know fbi white fbi agents talked behind the scenes about the problem right. with um, with black folk and and how they were a project to be solved or um, a you know a stain to be cleaned up and eradicated versus a, 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 a construct of beings to be in relationship with right um, and you know as we look at Bill O'Neill who is the um, what some would consider to be the antagonist in 
in the the film. You know, Bill is a 17-year-old black kid who is arrested when he's trying to hijack a car um, and is turned by the FBI, um, promised, um, you know, a, a reduction or an elimination of his charges if he agrees to work undercover for the Bureau and infiltrate Fred Hampton's party. And so if you're looking at, I mean, if you're looking for the plot of the film, if you haven't seen it yet, um, you know, Bill O'Neill is Judas in this, in this story. Um, But, you know, you and I have talked a lot about how problematic Bill O'Neill's, like the situation that he finds himself in his, he is not problematic and his situation is problematic because so many, um, so many folks have to compromise mm-hmm. their being um, simply to stay safe, safe within a system that that is not set up to to benefit them. Um, and O'Neill is a, a shining example of this mm-hmm. in in the film. Well, and this is at a much lesser degree in terms of systems, but like that is so much of my story of of because of violence and poverty for the first 12 years of my life living with my Mexican mother, I, I had to get out of that system and the system that then was the trade-off was living with my white father, which, you know, um, you know, the sort of the, the conditioning, the assimilation, uh, of all of that um, deeply compromised me. Um, and I think that um, BIPOC folks are always faced with this challenge of how, how do we live um, in a way that ensures our safety, our access to like basic human needs like housing and food, uh, how do we mitigate violence? Uh, you know this this is this is why so many people of color um, do like um, the corporate ladder. And and get access to social capital and live in a suburb, you know, it, which is mostly white, right? Um, so, the, the you know, the machinations of whiteness and supremacy culture um, are designed to to do this sort of thing, and it, you know, it. Um, you know, I've not seen the PBS documentary or the PBS interview of Bill O'Neill and the interviewer, you know, but, you know, he sort of came out and talked about all of this. And then, and then that night, um, died by suicide. Yeah. And, and I, I think that, um, that's the tragic story of so many of us who, man, we're just trying to survive the system. And so 
we we opt into the system not knowing fully what that means mm-hmm. and before we know it we are too tethered um too conscripted um to do anything but continue i mean i, I think about academia in the same way that yeah. that academia does these um, cluster hires and 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 basically hires tokens to quote unquote diversify their faculty, and you know that does several things: give marginalized people a living wage. Um, of course, they're working way more than other people and on right. way more committees, but th- now they have access to food and housing and healthcare, and. And now they're on this tenure track and after seven years and they get tenure, they're so compromised that whatever we are producing is so detached from any sort of embodied awareness or lived experience that it's just concepts and data and information that, but because our survival depends on this paycheck and access to basic human needs, you know, what do we do? Right. right. Yeah. And that story around academia is, you know, runs a parallel path with uh, the, the story about the institutionalized church, yep. um, you know, runs a parallel path with, you know, um, black and brown and oppressed folks, you know, finding their way into um, medium to large size corporate you know, entities and trying to, you know, decipher what it means to excel or accelerate in those, in those systems. Um, Every one of those systems is designed against you. Everyone is designed to thwart your capacity to say no or to pivot in a way that is healthy for you. It's designed that way. Mm-hmm. It's not a mistake. Um, it is. It is. It is intentional. Um, and because of that, and and because of the way that you so clearly articulated, you know, the the survival technique or the need for a survival um, ethic around, you know, I mean, it, it, it asks of us to capitulate to models mm-hmm. that are not in support of the common good right. and do not in any way gain liberation for mm-hmm. anyone mm-hmm. other than the person that sits at the top of that pyramid. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned a little earlier about um, – the fundraiser that is going on right now um, to save the Fred Hampton house. Um, There's a 501c3 that was started um, to preserve the childhood home of chairman Fred Hampton. Um, The home had um, sunk into um, uh, sunk into foreclosure um, and was purchased by Hampton's estate. Um, But the fundraiser itself is to raise enough money to designate the house as a landmark so that it could never be sold in the future and it could never be demolished in the future. Mm -hmm. Um, And there 
intent around this is to act to get landmark status is to actually um, make the home into a museum, um, make the home into into a building that houses educational service, that plants a community garden in the front and the back, that is a meeting place for community developers. Um, the house is located in Maywood, which is a little teeny suburb um, just to the west of downtown Chicago. And the, um, you know, this work is, this is, this is a real way that you all could get involved and be engaged. Um, you know, donate to the fund, the GoFundMe account. Um, if you're visiting Chicago and you, you know, you want to take a look at, at where Fred Hampton grew up in that neighborhood, um, you know, like, like go, go and go and see, go and, and engage. Um, there's, there is a lot of goodness and a lot of uh, beauty that came out of what was quite frankly, a heartbreaking and, and traumatizing film, you know, spoiler alert, um, you know, Fred Hampton is murdered at the end. I mean, I would say, I would say he's an assassinated by the he's state. assassinated. Yes. Thank you. That's, it's a much, you know, clearer way to state it. Um, you know, Fred Hampton is, is assassinated. Um, many others in the house that he's living in are, are killed, um, and or wounded. Um, his, um, girlfriend and the mother of his child, um, Fred Hampton Jr., um, are, uh, are spared and continue to, um, you know, to work in the blank, in the Black Panther Party to this day. Um, but, you know, Fred's life is a testament to um, what can happen when someone who believes so deeply in um, the liberation of their people really puts themselves on the line for that work. And, you know, Robin and I wanted to bring this film to your all's attention. Um, some of you may have, have heard of it. Some of you may have already watched it. Many of you may have. Um, but if you haven't, um, it is worth two hours of your time. Okay. It is worth um, the extra research that I would encourage you to do around Fred, around Bill O'Neill, um, around the Black Panther Party as a whole, and specifically around the the Illinois chapter. Um, you know, as I said earlier, there's a there's a lot for us white-bodied folks to learn, and there's a lot for us to unlearn. Um, and it took me forty years to be comfortable recognizing that I quite frankly had to unlearn more than I had to learn. Um, and it wasn't until I recognized that, that I was really able to, to, to look at stories like Fred Hampton's and um, see what really is the beauty in them and not judge them based on what my, um, you know, what, what my education had told me it should, it should look like. Hmm. Um, I'm, I encourage you to spend some time with it. I think you'll, I think you'll be better for it in the end. Yes. Dr. Robin, this is a, this has been a rich conversation. Um, I appreciate the way that you, um, 
that you allow us to pivot into spaces that um, many of us don't have the vocabulary to, mm-hmm. to speak to. Um, friends, watch Judas and the Black Messiah, uh, support the Save the Hampton House uh, GoFundMe account. Um, we will be back next week. Actually, a uh, little bit of a heads up. We have um, we are going to be starting a series next week that focuses on um, the way that Asian folks have been uh, discriminated against and treated so poorly, especially in the last year um, with the coronavirus. And um, we're going to have some really amazing voices that we're going to highlight during this series. And we hope you'll join us for that. I'm very uh, excited exciting. for this. Very yep. excited. Um, and until then, we will ask you to um, figure out how you get your hands dirty in the work, um, but also do the hard work of disentangling yourself from the history that you think you know, mm. uh, to then embrace um a, a truthful historical understanding of um, of what this country, how this country was really built, and who the heroes should be in our stories. Dr. Robin, until next week. The work is to get free. Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement? Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.kindful.com and click on podcast. And remember, activist and theology share a T. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by our friends Delta Ray. Our sound editor and engineer is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. Hands dirty.